Republicans to wake up is... The Republican Party right now is not led by conservatives. There's a population out there that has to be told the truth. Um, we have to. Do it live! Now, from the left coast, it's another podcast edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. Peter B. is curious, opinionated, and relentless in pursuit of the truth like a honeybee drawn to pollen. He's an independent progressive, ready to sting Republicans and Democrats alike when they deserve it. After years in commercial radio, Peter B. welcomes you to this audio adventure in news and politics with no corporate filter. Listeners support this program, and you can help at PeterBCollins.com. Here's your humble host, Peter B. My thanks to the listeners who support this program. Today we want to single out Doug McLeod of Medford, Oregon. He sent a money order. Thank you, Doug. I appreciate that. You can help, too. Just log on to PeterBCollins.com. Program journalist Robert Perry will join us from ConsortiumNews.com. He wrote an interesting think piece about the Supreme Court decision uh, unleashing corporate money into candidate campaigns here in the United States, and the corporations don't even have to be American-based. Uh, we will talk about that with Bob Perry. But joining us first is a journalist as well, Anand Gopal. He writes for the Wall Street Journal and also for the Christian Science Monitor, uh, Monitor, sorry about that. And he has an article coming in the current issue of The Nation magazine. Anand Gopal, welcome to our program today. Thanks for having me. Uh, You have really, uh, in this article called uh, Afraid of the Dark in Afghanistan, uh, described some very important issues that Americans need to know about. And this is the dark side of the military presence of U.S. and NATO forces in Afghanistan. And uh, what you talk about are night raids on, uh, you know, uh, civilians, uh, their homes, uh, some detention centers, uh, what we might call black sites that uh, most of us are unaware of, and some of the tactics that the U.S. continues to use uh, that, uh, in my view, are counterproductive because... They turn the population against us, and in many ways, your article points out that the Taliban is actually coming off as uh, uh, less less vicious uh, to the the citizens of Afghanistan. Let me start with your opening uh, sequence here, the anecdote about uh, an event near the town of Coast, where uh, village elders uh, were unable to find a a person who was taken in the middle of the night. And this is a a sequence that, uh, as you report, is not isolated. That's right. Uh, This 
particular case was a uh, government employee who was taken or simply vanished from the point of view of the uh, of the point of view of his family. He was taken um, from the city, and um, the family members uh, pressed all the uh, avenues they had available to them to try to find out what happened to them. To him, they asked government officials. They contacted the Taliban, uh, tribal elders, but nobody really knew what happened to him. And then uh, one day, months later, uh, the Red Cross sent him a letter saying that he was, in fact, uh, in a prison, Bagram prison, that's a few hundred miles away. Uh, and this is uh, the story across the board in um, the rural countryside where people are being taken and the family members don't know what's happening to them. And Anand, some of the issues that you report on are a little dated and occurred in the relatively early days of the U.S. presence in Afghanistan under the Bush administration. But the second story that you cite is from last November, 2009, and this occurred uh, outside of Ghazni City, and that is in the south of Afghanistan. Tell us about the raid on the home of the Minister of Agriculture named Karar. Well, Mr. Karar's home was raided by uh, U.S. Special Forces troops. Uh, they entered the home late at night. Um, they were looking for one one of his cousins. Uh, in the course of that search, they killed two other civilians that they had encountered. Uh, they ransacked the home, uh, threw all the clothes on the ground, uh, smashed the, the dishes, according to the family members present at the time. Uh, and then they detained two of the uh, suspects. Uh, and uh, they released one after a few days, but one of them, they took him off to a, uh, a small military prison uh, on a base nearby. And from that point onwards, the families lost uh, contact with him, and um, they don't know what's happened to him. Uh, again, the families pressed all the avenues they have available to them to try to find out um, their loved one's fate, but they haven't been successful this far. And so... Uh, as far as they're con- concerned, he's vanished, although most likely he is now in uh, Bagram prison. And his name is Rahman Karar, and they were the U.S. forces were acting, you say, on a tip that he was a member of al-Qaeda. And this appears to be based on, you know, from your reporting, that uh, he spoke English and he was uh, converting or translating documents into the local Pashto language. Uh, and he had spent some time in Kuwait, and this seemed to be uh, enough suspicion to pick him up and treat him in this manner. Uh, that's right, especially uh, the fact that he had spent some time in Kuwait, which is an Arab country. Uh, I think that may have um, made him suspicious uh, in the eyes of the authorities. Uh, beyond that as well, there's uh, a tendency uh, in the rural parts of Afghanistan where you have long-standing rivalries and feuds, and, and people use the U.S. forces as a way to get at their rivals. So what um, some of the family members of, of uh, Mr. Karar think is that um, another family in the area that um, has a, a, a rivalry with them told the U.S. authorities that uh, this person is linked to al-Qaeda. And um, the U.S. forces have little other information to go on except that sort of intelligence and therefore acted upon it and uh, took him away. And let me quote from your article. Weeks after the raid, the family remains bitter. Everyone in the area knew we were a family that worked for the government, Karar says. This is the uh, agricultural minister. Rahman couldn't even leave the city because if the Taliban caught him in the countryside, they would have killed him. Beyond the question of Rahman's guilt or innocence, however, it's how he was taken. 
that has left such a residue of hate and anger among his family. Quote, did they have to kill my cousins? Did they have to destroy our house? Karar asks. They knew where Rahman worked. Couldn't they have at least tried to come with a warrant in the daytime? We would have forced Rahman to comply. The quote continues. I used to go on TV and argue that people should support this government and the foreigners, he adds. But I was wrong. Why should anyone do so? I don't care if I get fired for saying it, but that's the truth. Now, this is a pivotal comment from uh, someone who is not, uh, as I'm thinking of a phrase Condoleezza Rice used to use, not inconsequential. Uh, This is a person who's put his life on the line to try to support this, uh, uh, you know, uh, corrupt and questionable Karzai government and the U.S. occupiers of his country. And this is an episode that has turned him against us. And as you report the other uh, stories in your piece, uh, this creates a pattern that makes the U.S. uh, effort to win hearts and minds and to use counterinsurgency tactics um, almost laughable. Well, that's right. And uh, if you look at the the U.S.'s main goal uh, here in Afghanistan uh, is to protect the civilian population so that the civilians will then... uh, cut their ties with the insurgents and support us. Um, and if you talk to Afghans uh, again and again, they'll say, yes, we do want to be protected. But often um, they say, we want to be protected from night raids such as this, in addition to be protected and being protected from the Taliban. Well, and uh, it seemed that General McChrystal, who has uh, clearly rolled back the use of airstrikes, and we've had fewer of these airstrikes on wedding groups and other uh, civilian gatherings that have caused so much uh, negative reaction and, and blowback. Uh, it seems that he is fairly sensitive to these issues, yet uh, these these tactics, while they may not be as frequent, uh, still seem to be pretty widely used. Well, yeah, and the, I mean, we have airstrikes and we have uh, night raids, um, and the airstrikes have diminished, and uh, they're pretty loud when they happen in the sense that uh, an airstrike occurs and kills 50 people, and everybody around the world will know about it. But uh, the night raids are different because uh, they're happening in the ones and twos, meaning that you'll have um, uh, coalition forces going into homes and and taking people away. But um, people who, when civilians are killed, is often in the ones and twos, and therefore doesn't, uh, each individual incident doesn't have the same sort of resonance as an airstrike does. But when you add it all up together, um, it's actually what was surprising to me is that it's the night raids more than the airstrikes that um, are causing a lot of fear and anger amongst the, the Afghan population. And what is the rationale on the part of U.S. special forces for using these tactics? Well, I, yeah, and I've talked to a lot of soldiers uh, about this, and uh, you, you hear again and again that um, they're in a war zone, and it's very difficult for them to understand or see who the enemy is exactly because the the insurgents look the same and dress the same as the as the civilians they in fact um, you know they often live um, amongst the civilian population um, it, and often you have an insurgent and then you have a number of people connected to that insurgent either spotters or people passing him information so there's a lot of people connected to the insurgency in the in the countryside and um, it's difficult for U.S. forces to, to figure out who exactly are the, are the real ones that you have to go after and who aren't. Uh, um, and so I think that, I mean, from the U.S. point of view, this is 
uh, this needs to be done. We need to round people up in order to fight effective counterterrorism. And and it, it it appears to me, Anand, that these uh, efforts are really counterproductive because with President Obama's uh, December first announcement of commitment of more troops, linked to a an initial attempt to start it withdrawing them in just a year and a half. It sends a message that uh, the U.S. presence is not permanent. Karzai wants foreign troops there for at least 10 years, but that uh, th- that uh, lack of clarity uh, in many respects causes people to shy away from any alliance with uh, the U.S. and NATO because there will be retribution whenever we do leave, whether it's in 18 months or 18 years. And the indigenous Taliban will, and, and there are other insurgent groups too, I hasten to add, that uh, often get lumped together with uh, the Taliban in U.S. media coverage. Uh, but it, it just seems to me that there is no way for us to f- drive a wedge between the civilian population and the Taliban, uh, given what we've just discussed. Yeah, that's right. And um, this is why I think we've been having such difficulty in trying to do that over the last, really over the last seven years, and especially over the last year. Um, the, the civilian population, I mean, the Taliban are the, or the rest of the insurgents are the sons and brothers and cousins of the civilian population. They are embedded in the villages in which they operate. Uh, it's not very straightforward separate them. I mean, these aren't, for the most part, uh, foreign fighters or, or people from other countries who are coming and operating. These are, you know, sons of the soil as far as the, the locals are concerned. So it is, it's a tremendous challenge. And um, in, there are, there's a sense, especially amongst sections of the Afghan government and the Afghan police, that we don't know how long the U.S. is going to be here. And we need to hedge our bets to make sure we don't alienate any side. So you'll see the Afghan police often maintaining connections to the insurgency and connections to the U.S. and their rationale as well. Once the U.S. leaves, if we're going to stay alive, we have to, you know, keep ties with the, with the insurgents. That's certainly understandable. And, you know, many Americans don't look at the context here that uh, Afghanistan has been involved in, in wars and occupation uh, going back to 1980. And that you know they they take the long view and your point about uh, the the you know family ties tribal ties uh these are very significant networks uh that cannot really be penetrated from the outside and it underscores the weakness of our intelligence and how we often grab the wrong people uh and we've seen that in those released from Guantanamo uh we've seen many patterns of that occurring uh, particularly in Afghanistan, when we were uh, paying bounties uh, for for suspects. That's right. I mean, Afghanistan in particular, uh, especially the, the posturing um, countryside, is one of the most extraordinarily complicated places uh, possibly on the planet. Um, you have, in a typical village, you'll have uh, some sort of tribal structure, that means with tribal elders and kind of, you know various clans. You'll also have militiamen and commanders, uh, you know, warlords, for example, you'll have also government officials, and it, it's extraordinarily difficult to sort of navigate through all of those different uh, people and forces on the ground and figure out, uh, you know, who are the people to trust, who are the people that you need to side with. It's even difficult for Afghans. I mean, very often one posture 
can go from one valley to another one and not be able to navigate those uh, complex uh, that that complex terrain. So you can imagine how difficult it would be for us coming from uh, halfway around the world with a totally different culture and totally different uh, understanding of things to be able to navigate it. And Anand, I want to uh, compliment you and uh, others. Uh, I'm looking right now at the Wall Street Journal from January 20th, and you're identified as a contributor along with uh, Yoki Driesen in Kandahar uh, to a front-page story that offers important detail uh, about the this new generation of Afghan warlords and this complex network of, of, uh, of ties that are tribal, that are familial, and that are regional. And uh, it's, it's very important, I think, for Americans to understand the complexity of this and that uh, the Taliban is not some unified uh, top-down command structure where we can simply uh, call for peace talks around a huge table in Paris. Yeah, it's, it's an extraordinarily complex movement, and there's more than one center of power within the insurgency, uh, even within the Taliban. Um, and, and most of us know about Mullah Omar, who was uh, the leader, supreme leader, before the U.S. invasion. And today, nominally, he's still the head of the insurgency. But uh, under him, there are commanders, some of them more or less completely operating independently of the leadership. And uh, you know, these are things we need to take into account in terms when we're trying to understand the insurgency and also down the line if there's ever going to be a, a possibility of negotiations um, to figure out who exactly we need to talk to and, and uh, what their importance is. Now, this article also makes a reference to uh, Baitala, I'm sorry, Hakamula Masood, the younger, um, who the U.S. now claims was killed in a drone strike in mid-January, and there remains some question about that. Uh, the, uh, there, there hasn't been a full confirmation of it. But talk a little bit about uh, Masood and also the use of drone strikes uh, in both Afghanistan and in Pakistan, where we do not have a clear legal uh, uh, right to conduct these uh, these unmanned aerial raids. Well, Hakim uh, Masood and the Masood clan in general are very interesting uh, because they're unlike the Afghan Taliban, one of the Taliban that fight in Afghanistan. Masood uh, and the people around him are much closer to Al Qaeda, um, and they have much more of a global jihadist outlook uh, than the insurgents we're fighting in Afghanistan. Uh, and um, the the Masood Plan, the, the, the group around this would have been subject to a large number of drone strikes, which have done a number uh, on the leadership of al-Qaeda and of the Pakistani Taliban. Um, now, the flip side of that is that um, Pakistanis say that a lot of civilians have been killed in the process as well, so that's something that U.S. authorities will need to weigh and see if that's actually worth, uh, that that's a cost they're willing to take in, in terms of uh, capturing the, the high-ranking leaders. Killing the and the attack on December 29 or December 30th uh, near coast at the forward operating base where I believe six CIA officers, two contractors, and a Jordanian were killed by a Jordanian who is uh, either a double or triple agent, uh, depending on how you exactly define that. Uh, but this Jordanian was a medical doctor who was radicalized by the Israeli assault on Gaza at the uh, end of 2008. And then they believed that they had flipped him and recruited him to uh, uh, essentially uh, penetrate al-Qaeda uh, for the purpose of killing top al-Qaeda leaders. 
and uh, he he turned and uh, wore a, a body bomb into this this base. And uh, from my point of view, that was a surgical strike that was aimed at those who were coordinating the drone assaults uh, that are, are remote controlled from the United States. But it's the forward operating bases that call the shots. Yeah, it was a re- remarkable uh, retaliation for the drone strikes. And um, after the attack, I I spoke to some insurgent commanders on the phone and tried to get a sense of why they did this and, and how. And everybody cited the drone, the, the drone strikes as the main reason for this. And uh, incidentally, this is not even this attack that happened was not even the first time that Al Qaeda had managed to penetrate the CIA. It happened uh, at least once before in the 90s, and, and that in and of itself is sort of remarkable if you think about it, that al-Qaeda um, is able to penetrate one of the most powerful intelligence organizations in the world, um, and they did so in December to very deadly effect. In addition, in your article, you talk about some of these field detention sites. Now, many of us are aware that the Bagram Air Base is more than an airstrip, there is a prison there, and it has multiple sites, including a black site. And uh, you are reporting, uh, for the first time to my knowledge, that there are at least nine field detention sites that are uh, in the uh, you know different parts of Afghanistan, and that these are places where uh, rough interrogation, uh, I'll allow you to use the word torture, because uh, if, if you care to, because you are much closer to the story than I am. But uh, the tactics that you describe being used are very similar to those that uh, were exposed at Abu Ghraib and that we know have been used at Guantanamo Bay. That's right. In, in fact, I interviewed for the story um, nearly two dozen uh, former detainees, and more than half of them said that uh, they alleged abuse, um, ranging from being slapped and kicked to more serious allegations, such as uh, even waterboarding and uh, and the sort. And, uh, and almost all of them said that the abuse had taken place either at these small uh, detention sites or en route to these small uh, detention sites. So what's happened over the last few years in Bagram, which is the prison, like you said, that most of us know about or have heard about, is Bagram has really cleaned up its act, and some of the worst uh, abuses have, have stopped there in the last few years. But some of that is now shifted to these smaller bases that are around the country, or even to the to the shifted to the process of capturing the, the detainees um, in their houses. Um, and that's sort of a very subtle shift that's happened probably in the last three or four years. And let me quote from your article: One of these former detainees is Noor Aga Shur Khan who used to be a police officer in Gardez, a mud-caked town in the eastern part of the country. And according to him, U.S. forces detained him in a night raid in 2003, brought him to a field detention site at a nearby U.S. airbase. They interrogated me the whole night, but I had nothing to tell them. He had worked for a police commander whom U.S. forces had detained on suspicion of having ties to the insurgency, and he had occasionally been a driver for this commander. The interrogators blindfolded him, taped his mouth shut, chained him to the ceiling, he alleges. Occasionally, they unleashed a dog, which repeatedly bit him. At one point, they removed the blindfold and forced him to kneel on a long wooden bar. They tied my hands to a pulley above and pushed me back and forth as the bar rolled across my shins. I screamed and screamed. Then they pushed him to the ground and forced him to swallow 12 bottles of water. 
Two people held my mouth open and they poured water down my throat until my stomach was full and I became unconscious. It was as, as if someone had inflated me. After he was roused from this torpor, he vomited the water uncontrollably. This continued for a number of days. Sometimes he was hung upside down from the ceiling, other times blindfolded for extended periods. And eventually he was sent to Bagram, where the torture ceased. Four months later, he was released with a letter of apology from U.S. authorities for wrongfully imprisoning him. Now, is this a new twist on waterboarding to uh, basically uh, poison people with water? Uh, yeah, this is, uh, and this seems to be the intent in that case. Um, uh, although this is the only, of the 24 people I interviewed, this is the only case I, I found where people, the investigators are using water in this way, although two other people did um, allege that they were waterboarded. And uh, have others, you, uh, you know, described these same tactics of being hung from the ceiling and uh, using a bar on their knees and shins? Uh, the bar on the knees and, knees and shins was uh, unique to this case, but other people have described being hung, uh, including being hung upside down. Uh, there's others who described uh, being stripped naked and uh, made to stand uh, outside in the cold for, for a day. Um, sleep deprivation is a common allegation where um, they're playing loud music and keeping the lights on, and uh, when somebody nods off to sleep, a prison guard will come in and, and uh hit their knees or hit their legs and uh, force them to stay, stay awake. Now, some of these have led to fatalities, to what we would call homicides. And you report on a case in Helmand Province, 2003, where uh, you cite a U.S. military coroner who wrote an autopsy report of a detainee who died in U.S. custody. Quote, Death caused by the multiple blunt, blunt force injuries to the lower torso and legs complicated by the release of toxic byproducts into the system due to destruction of muscle, manner of death, homicide. Now, this this appears to be a case that uh, you are reporting for the first time. Is that is that true? Uh, to my knowledge, this is the first that this has been reported. Um, and uh, this is not the only incident that where somebody has died in interrogation. Um, there's... Uh, one other incident that I didn't mention in the story, um, and there's a few uh, cases um, where we can't prove that the uh, detainee died under interrogation, but it's highly likely. Um, for example, cases where people were detained and then the next day their body was found near a U.S. base, for example. Mm -hmm. And have there been uh, investigations of these incidents? For the most part, there have not. Uh, in one case, uh, there was a CIA officer who beat um, uh, some uh, detainee to death in the course of interrogation, and he was charged. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the only case I know of in, in which um, somebody was charged. Now, a little bit more on these field detention sites. You say there are at least nine, and you identify one location at Rish Khor, K-H-O-R, which is an Afghan army base on a mountaintop overlooking Kabul. Uh, have you been able to visit that? Or are there any uh, any accounts of, of people who've actually seen the place? Uh, yes, I haven't been able to visit inside because it's, as you can imagine, very secretive and, and very difficult to get into. I've been to the base. Uh, but I've interviewed a number of uh, detainees who have been inside and as well as uh, Afghan army officials. Because um, this Rishkhor is a Afghan army base that is also used by special operations forces for uh, interrogation. Um, and uh, one person that I interviewed 
whose story I mentioned, in, uh, whose um, details I mentioned in the story, um, talks about how he was taken to this base and kept in a steel cage um, for a number of days um, where there's no windows and uh, he had no sense of when it was daytime, when it was nighttime. Uh, sometimes he kept in solitary confinement. Uh, interviewed some others who, uh, again, alleged uh, sort of kicking and slapping and dragging by the neck and being stripped naked. Now, you also give some detailed descriptions of the current scene at uh, the Bagram uh, internment facility. And there have been some upgrades, if we can call it that. Uh, There is a new site there that is uh, presumably much more humane. But describe for us the original prison and then the so-called black site. The original prison is uh, housed in uh, an old airplane hangar. And um, uh, inmates are, are in cages and um, guards are able to walk above the cages and sort of look down below and, and see um, who's staying there. And typically there's more than one inmate in a cage. Um, in the early years of Bagram, those were the worst years, where they marked by regular abuse um, or allegations of torture. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, that most of that subsided in the last uh, three years or so. And, and the main prison is a place that the Red Cross has access to and is able to visit detainees there. And now... Um, there's a program where families can come and visit these the detainees. There's that site, and then there's a separate site um, also on Bagram, a separate prison on Bagram Airfield, which is which uh, detainees call the Black Prison. And this is one that's run by Special Operations Forces, and uh, it's mostly used for interrogations. And uh, people are often kept there under solitary confinement um, for a number of days. Uh, food is limited. Um, there's again allegations of abuse. They still persist from there. Uh, the Red Cross doesn't have access to there in the same way they have access to the, the main person. And Anand, uh, what is your sense of the total inmate population? Because we recently saw some confirmation from the U.S. Uh, and the International Red Cross that the inmate count is somewhere in the seven to 800 range. But a few months ago, I interviewed uh, Pepe Escobar, who you may know. He's a journalist with uh, Asia Times Online. And he alleged that the count uh, could be much higher uh, in the thousands and that we're not getting uh, an honest accounting of how many people are detained there, particularly some who were not actually captured in Afghanistan. What is your best estimate? Well, I think in the main prison, uh, the numbers I get uh, are consistently between seven and 800. I think 720 was the number I heard most recently. But again, there's outside of the main prison, there is the black jail as well. Um, and we have no idea how many people are held there. Um, and uh, it could be up to 50 or 60 even at any given time. Uh, and then this also leaves aside all the other smaller prisons that are uh, around the country. Um, now, the U.S. Uh, did release the names of the uh, being held in Bagram very recently, but there is still some question as to whether all of the non-Afghans, uh, and as you mentioned, there may be some captured in other countries that are being held in, in Bagram, uh, whether all the non-Afghans are being accounted for. And that's a very sensitive issue because uh, it's one thing if Bagram is used as a, a prison for those captured fighting in the Afghan war, but it's an entire is another thing entirely if um, there are people who are being captured outside and uh, being sent to Bagram, which was definitely the case in the early years. 
And the Obama administration has not been any more transparent, really, than the Bush administration. I mean, it does appear that the president's mandate to end torture uh, is being carried out to some extent. Uh, But we know that the uh, Obama administration moved legally uh, to deny habeas corpus rights to uh, as many people there as they could, and that uh, essentially they are extending many of the legal practices that were established under Bush and Cheney. Well, that's right. And, and the biggest issue is the, the legal status of the people who are being held in Bagram, um, which uh, Bush administration officials argued that Bagram was in, um, in the theater of war, uh, you know, in the midst of a war zone, and therefore um, the rules of habeas, the cor- uh, habeas corpus and other civil rights uh, rules don't apply to, uh, to their um, because it's an it's active uh, battle zone. And it seems as if the Obama administration has continued that line of argument. Um, and therefore, recently, uh, earlier uh, in 2009, um, there was um, a move by a, a district court to um, grant uh, people non-Afghans being held in Bagram the right of habeas corpus. But uh, that right has not been extended yet to a- Afghans who are living there. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Well, I really appreciate your reporting. And Anand, uh, I know you have a website at anandgopal.com, A-N-A-N-D-G-O-P-A-L, and you're currently working on a new book about the Afghan war. And what is your relationship with the Wall Street Journal? Are you a staffer or a, uh, a, a freelancer? No, I was with the Wall Street Journal, but uh, now I'm uh, independent and working on my book full-time. You are. Okay. Well, is there anything you'd like to add that uh, we didn't cover in our conversation? I think we covered everything uh, pretty thoroughly. All right. Well, I want to thank you for your time today, and I really appreciate these uh, important reports that you have brought forward. Thank you so much. Nice to talk with you. And the Peter B. Collins Show continues, sponsored by the Organic Wine Company. Now that you're eating organic, it's time to drink organic. Stand by for news about a special Peter B. Collins Organic Wine Club. We'll unveil that in the coming weeks. In the meantime, click on the link on my homepage at peterbcollins.com for a special introductory offer just for you. Our transition music from the late great Isaac Hayes, the theme from Shaft. Robert Parry joins us from consortiumnews.com, and I think Citizens Got the Shaft from the Republican-packed Supreme Court in the 5-4 decision that will unleash corporate money into campaigns for candidates, and that money will not be controlled by the candidates. It's not unlimited contributions. Those are still restricted. But they'll be able to use what are called independent expenditures, which are even more dangerous in my uh, estimation because they do not, uh, they cannot by law be coordinated with the candidate and the campaign in particular. Robert Perry, welcome back to our program today. Thanks, Peter. I want to direct people to consortiumnews.com because uh, on January 27, you published a very thoughtful piece about the Supreme Court decision, and you offered some very important context and history, not ancient history, recent history, uh, about how we got to where we are. First, let's talk about the ruling itself, because it, uh, it is remarkable the way the court seized on a case uh, that had, you know, very narrow uh, 
uh, what a narrow uh, connection to the very broad ruling that they issued. And on that basis, it seems like they were really just itching to uh, unleash corporate money uh, and uh, enhance this concept of corporate personhood. Although from my reading, they, they didn't really touch the corporate, corporate personhood issue in this decision. Uh, but it does really change the landscape. And what I see coming in uh, as soon as the uh, primaries this year is uh, corporations uh, uh, using independent expenditures to sink candidates who don't agree with the corporate agenda. It's that pure and simple. Right. I think one can expect that. I think also one can expect it to be indirect. I think what is perhaps as um, as cynical and, and, and troublesome about this decision is that corporations can now uh, pool some resources and decide that they, they, perhaps they want to attack a candidate not for what he did maybe indirectly connected to the corporation, but on some other matter, and have it come at, as, as something so it doesn't appear to be that the corporation is going at him. So in other words, it can be indirect. It's sent almost covert. Uh, you could have, for instance, uh, uh, health insurance uh, industry people putting money into into a chamber of commerce, and that therefore is moved around to attack the candidate for a whole different set of issues than health care. Mm-hmm. And, and so there are ways this could work, and we've seen this happening already in the United States, where, um, where, where corporations can sort of conceal their, their activities behind a populist uh, false flag. They can, they can, uh, they can put money into, into groups that go after a politician uh, as if the politician is taking positions against the people when, in fact, the politician is really taking positions against the corporation. So it's going to get very uh, dicey and, and, and very confusing, and unless the American people are extremely alert, and, they, and it's very difficult to be that alert, uh, you're going to see a lot of politicians smeared uh, because they've tried to do the right thing, and in, and in other cases helped when they've done the wrong thing. Well, and Bob, the example that comes to mind for me is here in California, uh, Senator ba- ba- Barbara Boxer is up for re-election this fall. She's unopposed in the primary, so they will wait until the fall. But uh, she has led the effort to pass a cap-and-trade uh, bill uh, related to climate change in the Senate, where it is stalled. And I can imagine clean coal and big oil uh, loading up on television ads here in California uh, describing her as a job killer, as, uh, you know, somebody who uh, is opposed to, you know, what's good for America and what will uh, help uh, carry our economy forward out of this dismal recession. And uh, I note that uh, we neither produce or use coal here in California. But uh, those interests uh, can come in from outside. And again, they wouldn't be coordinated with the Republican opponents they would be just dropping uh, uh, cluster bombs uh, on television ads and perhaps elsewhere um, that really could destroy her candidacy. And uh, she's a pretty decent fundraiser and a feisty campaigner, but uh, these companies can spend unlimited amounts, and of course the television networks and station owners will be happy to take their money and run these ads. Well, that's true, and I think we've, and this is just another phase of something we've been seeing developing. And, and almost in some ways, some of the uh, some of the campaign finance reform has backfired. Because if you tell someone uh, a candidate that he can only raise so much money, you know, can only spend so much money, but there is no regulation of say this sort of advertising, 
um, or, for that matter, some of the money that's been poured into media in recent decades. So uh, Fox News or Rush Limbaugh and all the other uh, this, this sort of the right-wing media can go on the offensive, too, against a candidate. Uh, for instance, what happened with John Kerry when, when there, were, uh, there were attacks on him, there were the, uh, of course, there was also the, uh, the Swift Boat effort, which got a lot of attention on the right-wing media, ultimately spread into the mainstream media. But Kerry was, was hamstrung in 2004 because he, he didn't have the money to go on the air to, to defend himself. So you end up sometimes with the politicians who are operating within these constraining rules now being doubly whammed because they, are, they, 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 they don't have the resources to even defend themselves when now the corporations, and in various ways, either through their own, through media that is sympathetic to them, or now through advertising they can take out on, uh, on all the TV stations and all the radio stations, they can go after people, and it's very hard for the politician to respond. Well, and, uh, you know, this, this, if there were a playing field that could be leveled, I, I mean, this turns it at a 45-degree angle. And while the Supreme Court decision does permit uh, unions and other groups, you and I could form a corporation and run some independent expenditures, uh, we simply cannot match the uh, cash resources that are available to big business. That's, of you and me, it's certainly true. <laughs> <laughs> now, I want to inject here some commentary from Glenn Greenwald. He is a constitutional attorney. He uh, writes uh, at Salon.com, and he's a guy I have deep respect for. And he makes a couple of points about this decision, and then I'll read a quote from it. One, that uh, the restrictions on corporate spending are, are somewhat meaningless because uh, they find ways to do it anyway. Uh, through PACs, uh, through bundling, and uh, that, you know, he sees this as uh, not quite the debacle that many people have have expressed. He also uh, takes the position of an absolutist on the First Amendment and uh, believes that uh, even though, you know, people like me don't like the outcome here, that we have to honor uh, the strictures of the First Amendment. So here's a quote from uh, Greenwald. The speech restrictions struck down by Citizens United do not only apply to Exxon and Halliburton, they also apply to nonprofit advocacy corporations, such as, say, the ACLU and Planned Parenthood, as well as labor unions, which are genuinely burdened in their ability to express their views by these laws. I tend to take a more absolutist view of the First Amendment than many people, but laws which prohibit organized groups of people, which is what corporations are, from expressing political views goes right to the heart of free speech guarantees, no matter how the First Amendment is understood. Does anyone doubt that the facts that gave rise to this case, namely the government's banning the release of a critical film about Hillary Clinton by Citizens United, is exactly what the First Amendment was designed to avoid. And does anyone doubt that the First Amendment bars the government from restricting the speech of organizations composed of like-minded citizens who band together in corporate form to work for a particular cause? Well, I respect Greenwald, and I hear what he's saying in this argument. But there are big differences. For example, I own a few shares of a drug company called Bristol-Myers Squibb. And without my permission, without consulting me in any way, they have used corporate money that could have been paid out as a dividend to me (laughs) to get involved in political campaigns. And in particular, uh, they spent uh, millions of dollars in California a couple of election cycles ago to kill a single-payer health initiative. 
And uh, I'm deeply offended by that, and I wrote to Investor Relations, and they wrote back and basically thumbed their nose at me. Uh, so the, the differences here, not only in resources, but in the decision-making process, are substantive in my view. Right. I think some people have to be realistic about uh, practicality. Um, principle, uh, I tend to agree on principle with, 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 with the idea that people should uh, be allowed to say what they wish. Um, and I, I also think that, uh, you know, as much as I also respect much of what uh, uh, Greenwald has, has written in the past, and I tend to disagree with him on the point he's making here, I would add, however, that sometimes people on the progressive side tend to try to use regulations to achieve something when there is an opening for them to, to build something and, 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 and instead. An awful lot of money has gone into campaign finance reform from the left. And it's been done in the kind of a way of sort of, well, let's just sh- shut this down so uh, there can be more of an even playing field. The problem has been that there are areas that you cannot regulate. For instance, media. And again, this is a First Amendment issue. So if the right-wing corporations and, and, and ideologues and there's just a lot of rich people want to go in and invest in building radio stations or the Washington Times being set up or mm-hmm. Fox News or, or setting up radio syndicates, that can be done, and it's not controlled. Right. So I think sometimes though it's, some of the progressives would be better off trying to build some uh, entities, some institutions to compete with the right rather than simply trying to put all their eggs in the basket of trying to regulate speech. And so I think we've seen that uh, particularly on the campaign finance reform. We've seen it in some other areas, too, uh, the idea of the fairness doctrine in, in terms of radio. Some of these things, first of all, are very difficult to achieve politically, like restoring the fairness doctrine. And I'm not quite sure it's a particularly great idea, but to put so much effort and money into that sort of endeavor when say they could be supporting the Peter B. Collins show mm-hmm. and making sure that, uh, that radio stations uh, around the, the country are, are broadcasting that kind of quality content, I think sometimes that should be more of a focus. Well, and I, I, and that I, has been a problem, I think, sometimes. I, I think you make a great point, and Greenwald uh, makes that point in this lengthy uh, treatise as well, that media corporations are exempt from these current regulations and that rather than try to restrict Sean Hannity's speech, the answer is more speech uh, and more outlets. And uh, I certainly agree with you, and we've discussed this before, that Democrats and the, the uh, unaligned progressive left have failed in building any kind of meaningful infrastructure. And the demise of Air America recently is really just the uh, most visible uh, recent example. And I think that is a problem, and I think that's so why I think, but both things can happen. There can be a, a, an honest effort to, to sort of make campaigns cleaner. Uh, there can be requirements for um, television stations and radio stations to carry debates or carry uh, messages from different candidates. That's how it is done in, in many other countries, which would, would, that would reduce the cost of the campaigning, uh, free up the politicians from having to go big rich people for money all the time, which is not a particularly healthy thing for a democracy. Mm-hmm. But I think on, on top of that, so you can try to do some things that make sense, but I also think there has to be a major commitment of resources from the progressive side in building maybe not something that is a mirror image, certainly the right, I'm not sure anyone would want that, 
and not maybe even that large, but something that at least creates the opportunity for um, a serious debate about where the country should go to happen. Uh, right now, people hear endlessly, if, they, if they're, on their, they're listening on their radio as they're driving around the countryside, they're hearing how terrible, how terrible the, um, uh, how terrible the, uh, the idea of government uh, is. Big government's the enemy. But big government is really, if done properly, with democratized and energized, could be the most, the only way to really constrain corporations. So much of what the corporate world is doing right now, what big business is doing, is trying to undermine the ability of, of the federal government to impose regulations or to change some of the rules that the corporations find um, unacceptable, that somehow impinge on their profits. So what the Supreme Court did is basically it said, okay, here's a whole new area where you guys can just pour money in to make sure that the federal government can't function in a way on behalf of the American people and instead will be sort of kept on the sidelines, portrayed as the enemy of the people, there'll be, pop, there'll be a populist false flag to, to get a lot of Tea Partiers to think that the big government's the real threat to their freedoms, when the biggest threat to their freedoms is from big business and corporations and the kind of controls that they have imposed on us, whether it's in dealing with our credit card companies or our health providers or, or even you know, your cable TV providers, uh, the American people are in a really tough position trying to deal with all those powerful corporations by themselves. They need the government to sort of intervene and, and make sure the rules are fair and that things are done decently. And, Bob, uh, one more comment on the decision and Greenwald's analysis is that while this court decision does free, uh, in particular, labor unions to uh, participate in a more robust way in candidate campaigns. Uh, one of my fears, and this uh, is, was not original to me, but my lawyer buddy uh, down the hall in the office building here, his first reaction was, well, they're going to use this new freedom corporations are to pass uh, paycheck protection. And that's the euphemism for forcing labor unions to get permission from each individual member to use their dues money for political advocacy. And uh, if, if they put the same restrictions on corporations where their shareholder protection, as I alluded to earlier, that might be okay. But my guess is that with this new uh, uh, freedom that corporations will have to invade the political process, that we will see a very one-sided regulation of dangerous special interests called labor unions, which represent less than 10% of the workforce in this country, uh, while the uh, shareholders will not have that same right to check the power of corporate leaders to spend their money on campaigns. Right. I think you're going to see uh, all kinds of efforts to essentially um, uh, sandbag the public in a whole variety of ways now. And it wasn't that long ago, uh, back uh, just maybe uh, five or so years ago, when, if you remember, the Republican Party, uh, Karl Rove, was talking about establishing a permanent Republican majority. And obviously that didn't really work out quite that way because, uh, because of some of the serious mistakes that President Bush made. The ability of people, especially uh, on the Internet, for the progressives to sort of get a message out of, of how of how damaging the, the Iraq war was. So there was, a, there was this pushback. Air America was part of that, and so were some of these uh, smaller efforts that progressives did try to put together. Now, but the, but the basic reasons behind 
Karl Rove's notion of having a permanent Republican majority, effectively a one-party state, and not just for a brief time, but he, he was seeing this forever, uh, where the Democrats would be kept around as an appendage and be taught to behave properly, uh, understanding that the masters would be the Republicans. You mean like the Washington generals? <laughs> right, they'd be the Washington generals to the Harlem Globetrotters. <laughs> that was the idea. And so, but there was a reason behind it. It wasn't just cra- crazy, you know, wild thinking on the part of Karl Rove. He saw the money situation, and he felt that the way the money was going to pile up on their side, the way the media was piling up, they were building, they were pouring billions into having their uh, a very ideological media. All these things were happening, and, plus, and there wasn't much happening on the progressive side. He saw this tremendous structural advantage on the part of the Republicans and the right, and he thought that would sort of, they could, like def- they could define reality itself. And, and what you're going to see now, and we're already seeing after one year of Obama, we're seeing this ability to sort of change the frame rewrite the history, uh, oh, try to clear, claim that, that, that Bush inherited, as I heard this today from one of the Republican Congress people, that Bush inherited a terrible situation when he took over in 2001. He inherited 9-11, according to this, this mm-hmm. one person. You know, so he, not that he, 9-11 happened on his watch, but that he inherited it. And that he, therefore, so it was sort of, you know, again, it was Clinton's fault. So there's this effort to sort of change the history. And, and, and with the ability to use uh, propaganda and this overwhelming media power and, and these advertising of, of, of strategies, you can see how the American people will be uh, seriously misinformed, deluded, and will therefore take actions in terms of how, who they vote for, ba- not based on what's in, even in their own interest, but, but who the cool person is. Why, why is Scott Brown cooler than, uh, than Martha Coakley? Uh, they, this idea that um, you know that she didn't know who some baseball player was. I mean, so these kinds of things become then determinative of, of who gets elected. And so I think what you what you what you could see is maybe not as quite as Karl Rove envisioned it, but I would not put it past the way this thing is moving along that it would be extremely difficult for a certainly a progressive Democrat in many states to have any hope of getting elected. And, and the chance of any kind of serious effort to deal with the, with the problems the nation is facing just won't happen because, uh, because the idea of having a strong federal government intervene on behalf of the public will be something that just will be unthinkable based on, on the way the media and the advertising structure is going to be set up. Bob, I want to go next to the important uh, historical context that you provided in this piece, but in transitioning... I want to note that uh, Karl Rove uh, was toiling in the vineyards in the 90s. He was uh, booted off the Poppy Bush campaign in uh, 92, and he spent the rest of that decade working in Texas and Alabama and a few other states to elect pro-corporate judges. And this was part of a reaction to the uh, Master Tobacco Settlement that uh, really raised the hackles not only of the tobacco industry, but other corporate interests. And they launched uh, through the Chamber of Commerce, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and uh, other uh, efforts, uh, a very concerted campaign to elect pro-corporate judges uh, at the state level. And this uh, bled over into the weekly meetings that Rove convened in the White House during the Bush years, where they were selecting judges and U.S. attorneys, and they very carefully packed the courts. And it's most visible to people 
in the nominations and confirmations of Chief, Chief Justice Roberts and Associate Justice Alito. Uh, but there are many Roberts and Alito-like uh, black-robed individuals with very strong corporate leanings uh, who are uh, now enjoying lifetime appointments on federal courts. And we are going to see this play out over the next 20 years, in, in my view, in a very major way. Right. This is another uh, layer of, of this idea of the permanent Republican majority that Roe had hoped for. And, and this really does go back in time to the beginning of the Reagan administration, when it, obviously even further because the, the right was very angry about uh, judges like the Warren Court for overturning racial segregation. Activist uh, judges, yeah. These are, these are called activist judges. And obviously there were things that were more controversial, like uh, the, the, the Roe v. Wade uh, abortion ruling. Uh, but much of it was that the right was very angry about the ending of Jim Crow, the ending of segregation, uh, the idea that, that, that African Americans were equal to, uh, to whites. That was infuriating to many of the Southern segregationists. So there was this, there was this hatred that had built up. It was, a, it was a core part of, of what was driving some of the, the right-wing movement in the 50s and 60s. Now, when you get to Ronald Reagan's presidency, when he came in, and, of course, the Republicans also were able to win the Senate that, that, that year, and they, the theory was that they were going to start putting on these, these political partisan judges, uh, on the, especially on the U.S. Court of Appeals in Washington, D.C., that's the appeals court that gets m- many of these important uh, governmental cases before they move up to the Supreme Court. Many of them, of course, don't get to the Supreme Court. But so the appeals court was considered very, very important. So you started seeing the Reagan people packing that court with people like Lawrence Silberman, uh, who was a neoconservative, uh, aggressive neoconservative uh, political activist. Well, let's use your, your adjective here, obstreperous. Well, he was obstreperous. (laughs) I've been at the receiving end of some of his obstreperous comments uh, at at one point when I was at PBS, and he was uh, was quite angry uh, in a very uh, non-judicial sort of way Mm -hmm. at me. But but people like David Centel, who was uh, uh, was a a Jesse Helms protege, who was put on. So there were these efforts to put on ideologues, and not just ideologues, but, but partisan ideologues. Uh, and, and we started seeing how this was playing out in the, um, uh, there was also an effort to get control during the Reagan-Bush years of the special prosecutor apparatus. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the time, this, back in the 80s, the special prosecutor apparatus was controlled by the Republicans. But the, the, the man in charge was, was a Judge McKinnon. He was a federal, a retired sort of federal judge, senior federal judge. And he ran that special prosecutor selection process very seriously. And when it came to Iran-Contra, he picked uh, Lawrence Walsh, who was another respected Republican conservative judge, but of the old school, the Eisenhower school. These were serious men. And so uh, that was not to the liking of the, of the, of the Reagan uh, administration and then the first Bush administration, nor to some of the ideologues on the court. So as, as Lawrence Walsh continued to push ahead in trying to un, uh, unravel the Iran-Contra mystery, um, William Rehnquist, who was uh, a right-wing sort of racist uh, jurist back from days in, in Arizona when he was doing uh, election security, basically to keep the, keep the dark folks from, from being allowed to vote too much. That is he true. Then, mm-hmm. He then moved, he was then appointed by Nixon and elevated to the, to the chief justice spot by Reagan. 
And in that spot, he was able to control that process. And this is a very interesting little historical fact that people don't really know much of. But he then, he removed McKinnon in 1992 and put in place, and put in place um, uh, uh, David Centel, this right-wing, young, young right-wing judge. You're supposed, to, you're supposed to use older judges who are out of the political process. But Rehnquist threw that aside and picked Centel to put him in charge of the, who picked special prosecutors. It was a way to put pressure on Walsh because he could be limited in what he could look at as this investigation went forward, but it also allowed, uh, it also allowed Centel to pick partisan judges either to protect Republicans, as he did when in his first choice was a Republican to investigate George H.W. Uh, Bush about uh, some uh, uh, electoral abuse that he was involved with, known as the Passport Gate Affair. He picked uh, Joe DeGenova, a right-wing partisan Republican, to basically whitewash what Poppy Bush had done. But then he was also in a position to go after Bill Clinton. When Clinton got elected, Centel was picking all these right-wing partisan judges to uh, go after uh, Clinton, most notably Ken Starr, who mm -hmm. took the Whitewater investigation and later turned it into an investigation of Clinton's sex life. So you had this, then suddenly a partisan use of special prosecutors, but it was, a, it was sort of a sense of how these guys were going to operate. Uh, the judicial system was going to be used as a political weapon. And what Walsh just said during his Iran-Contra period was that when he'd get these convictions, he saw these judges as sort of the reserve army of the Republican Party. So when he, finally, when he, got, when he, when he convicted Oliver North and he convicted John Poindexter of the, in the Iran-Contra scandal, those cases then went to these judges. Uh, Silverman and Centel got, were the two of the three judges that got the North case. And they overturned it. Suddenly, they became great defenders of, of criminal of criminal rights. Mm -hmm. You know, the, mm -hmm. the rights of the defendant. When they, before, they'd always been hostile to the rights of defendants. Suddenly, they were seeing all kinds of reasons to protect the rights of a defendant. In this case, Oliver North. And, and let me just interject that the North case <clears throat> that they overturned was based on the immunity that was granted to him when he testified before Congress. Right. And in a similar fashion. The recent case of uh, <clears throat> the Blackwater mercenaries who opened fire in Nisour Square in Baghdad um, was, uh, was uh, uh, poisoned in the same manner. And so Judge uh, Ricardo Urbina apparently had no choice but to dismiss those charges because, uh, I, and I don't know that it is directly precedential to the North case, but I connect them uh, intellectually that they use this, this same way of poisoning a prosecution by uh, intentionally violating the rights of the accused in the initial investigation. Well, I think, you know, I, again, I think there, there was a point of stretching some of these rights of defendants to, to sort of for political purposes. In the case of the North situation, they, new law was being created on the appeals court to sort of uh, suddenly extend... Uh, how uh, how those immunity grants would then prevent a prosecution, but but leave that aside. They're, 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 what what Walsh was seeing, what he was identifying, was a partisan political use of the of of the judicial uh, process, mm -hmm. and that has continued. And now, and and what happened under under George W. Bush was was the opportunity for him to to further politicize. Uh, the courts. Interesting. Well, the, the middle step here was that in 2000, of course, when 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 Al Gore won the election, he won the he won the popular vote, and 
we now know, based on the on, what, on the study done by some of those news organizations, that he would have narrowly carried Florida if all legally cast votes were allowed to be counted. But they weren't allowed to be counted because the, because the five Republicans on the U.S. Supreme Court uh, essentially stopped the recount and wouldn't. And, and when they decided that they what these new rules would be for the recount, they gave it two hours to be carried out, which couldn't be done. So they, they handed the presidency to George W. Bush. He then returned the favor by appointing more right-wing Republicans uh, to court vacancies when they open. Rehnquist dies, replaces him with John Roberts. And then uh, when Sandra Day O'Connor, who was the swing vote, by the way, on what we're talking about, she was yep. the, she actually, even though she, she was part of the, the, the five who put Bush in the White House, she was more moderate on this issue of campaign finance reform. Mm-hmm. So when he, when the when the choice first Harriet Myers was appointed, if you remember the, the, yeah. the White House counsel, <laughs> the right wing objected to her because she wasn't right wing enough. So she was withdrawn, and then Alito, who was a far right ideologue, who believed in the imperial presidency, um, he was appointed to fill O'Connor's seat. And the Democrats, you know, amazingly, yeah. they had 42 votes against him, which is a very high number for against a, a Supreme Court justice. Mm-hmm. They could have, they could have, they could have filibustered, and certainly the Republicans, as we see these days, would have clearly filibustered if they had 42 votes against something. Uh, but, there, but the Democrats, some of them agreed. Well, we'll, let the, we'll, 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 we'll shut down a filibuster. We'll vote cloture, and then we'll flip around and vote against him which allowed him to, to get down to the court. So he was able, able to get out of the court with 42 negative votes. Yes, and I, I fully agree that that is the pivotal point here, because Bush's agenda was not a secret. Alito's uh, record was not a secret. It was very clear uh, in the confirmation hearings about uh, his, his extreme corporate and uh, conservative leanings. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, Bork as a verb offends some people, but I think the Democrats should have Borked Alito. And they failed to do that, and we are paying the price big time. He's a young man who will be on the court for another 30 or 40 years. Right. He's a pure, he's an ideologue and a partisan. And I think that's the key. I mean, these are, as much as, as, much as the, the, some of these new justices will say, oh, we, 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 we want to respect precedent, we're going to be very cautious, we don't want to be, it, it, that was all a lie. That was effectively a lie that was told to the Senate at the time that they wanted to um, they wanted to get confirmed. Uh, since they got confirmed, they they've now are showing their real their real hand. They're, they're, they have much like the, uh, the one of the interesting things about the 2000 decision. I go into this this in the piece is that the 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 initial decision to to give give Bush the presidency was based on one set of arguments. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was on December 11th. There were the 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 five Republicans were going to say that the the Florida Supreme Court had, quote, made new law because they cited the state constitution in allowing the recount to go forward. Uh, then, this, but, but in the meantime, this, the, the Florida Supreme Court uh, re- removed the one line that dealt with this, the constitution, so they couldn't claim that the, that the Florida Supreme Court was making new law. Now, three of them didn't care, uh, Rehnquist, Scalia, and Thomas. They, were, they just wanted to put Bush in. But Kennedy and O'Connor felt they couldn't do it. It was just so, so dishonest. So they went out and devised a new reason, which was the opposite of the reason that they had previously had. They were saying that they suddenly said, well, the Supreme Court in Florida did not make new law because they did not apply the 14th Amendment properly. 
And, and so, <laughs> so they flipped the ruling on its head, their reasoning. Now, as far as uh, Scalia, Rehnquist, and Thomas were concerned, they didn't really care. You could give them anything, and, and they would have said, put Bush in. Mm-hmm. The other two, Kennedy and O'Connor, felt they had to sort of paper it over in this sort of twisted use of the 14th Amendment. And, and this, just to describe it in a little more detail, is equal protection. And they were claiming that you couldn't have a recount that uh, protected individual voters equally because of the disparate means uh, of counting votes in Florida. Right. And, and this is incoherent because uh, that was the system that was in place with all of its flaws and hanging chads and, and all of the things that we learned about in the aftermath. But uh, to say that uh, we're going to lock in a vote that we know was flawed because recounting the votes would be flawed, you know... It, it made no sense. It yeah. Was, it was, it was, and and it, it, actually, the recount was... The point of the recount was to reduce these inequalities because under the, because of the way yeah. Florida and many, most states are, some, some counties had optical scanners where there were almost no errors. Others had this, these punch things where there were a lot of errors. Others had... A different system. Butterfly now, ballots, the, yeah. I, but, but the idea of the recount was to say, okay, the best you can, let's, let's smooth that out. Because, because what you were having in some of the poor counties where the elderly Jews and the African Americans were voting were these, these awful old uh, systems that, that were, were a lot of their votes were lost. So to make, that, to make that equal or as equal as possible with the wealthier counties, which had the optical scanner stuff, mm-hmm. That's what the point of the Florida Supreme Court was doing. We said, okay, we're going to try to make it as even as possible. It's not going to be perfect, but as even as possible. Get as many of these votes, recover them as possible, and that will equalize things. Now, so the Supreme Court took the op in, the, in using the equal protection under the law statute. They actually imposed a much, a much vaster inequality. It was upside down and inside out. But the but the real point was that those five Republican partisans just wanted George Bush in the White House. And they, and, were, gonna, and, and they, were, and they didn't really care what reasons they had to apply. But, and, but this is very, very dangerous, because the Supreme Court in the United States has this exalted position of being the final arbiter on law. And, on, and so it can do these kinds of things, because no you really can't go past the Supreme Court unless you want to go into the streets and have riots. Yeah. So, so it, it, by having now the Supreme Court as a partisan weapon, and this ruling of the other the other day is another example of the Supreme Court applying itself as a partisan weapon. It wants to put more money into what it considers right wing causes that it that it favors to get its politicians elected and defeat those people who the Supreme Court this these this five this these five right wing justices people they don't like that that is going to be the way it's going to go into the future. And, and, and what that means is that, that what, what Walsh saw when he tried to get convictions had to run up against the federal appeals court in Washington, this idea of, them, of being this rear guard of, of the Republican uh, army, that is, now, that is now going to be the case with the, with the Supreme Court. It is, it is sort of the reserve army for the Republicans. And, and I, I, would, I would also suggest that if, if any health care bill does ultimately get through the U.S. Congress and is signed by President Obama, it is very likely to be knocked down by this Supreme Court. This is not a court of, of, of sort of applying law. It is a partisan weapon, mm-hmm. and that's a serious problem for a democracy. 
And in the event that we lost any of our listeners in that discussion about the Florida uh, election shenanigans and the appeals and the Supreme Court's role, uh, two things. One is uh, podcasts you can always hit rewind and listen again, or you can go to consortiumnews.com and read Robert Perry's uh, description of this. But he summed it up beautifully, heads Bush wins, tails Gore loses. And that was how the court essentially ruled. Correct. It was it was a it was a political decision, not a a judicial decision or not a legal decision. The legal the legal arguments were all for letting the vote go forward. And I and, I, and amazingly, as uh, much as the good thing or a bad thing, but Al Gore trusted that the, that people like Sandra Day O'Connor would insist on the application of the rule of law, and and it turned out that she was as in a sense as partisan as as these other folks were. Yeah in voting this way, although she was obviously more moderate on other issues than Alito, her replacement, has been. But she was not willing to put to trust the democracy. She was not willing to say, as we do in America, even in close elections, do the best we can. We're going to count the votes as best we can. Whoever gets the most, that person wins. Instead, this was a, an inter- intervention by the court to stop that from happening. And, and it really is unprecedented in American history. Uh, for the Supreme Court to behave in the way that court did. And I would argue that the consequences that we have dealt with, we are dealing with today because of that, uh, uh, the Bush administration, the, the vast, the, the disasters that occurred then, the, um, uh, the, the, the enormous federal debt that we're facing, uh, all the problems that were allowed to fester, the Supreme Court essentially put us on that path by not allowing democracy to, to work not allowing the votes to be counted. And, Bob, we don't know what will happen this November in terms of the uh, composition of the United States Senate. But given a couple of things, one, that the Democrats insist on uh, uh, cloture votes but not, uh, you know, forcing filibusters, so they, they cave on those on a routine basis, and the unified opposition of the Republicans, despite the repeated efforts by President Obama to operate in a bipartisan fashion and continue to negotiate with himself to to try to attract Republican support. Uh, we have seen in this first year lost opportunities to put reasonable people on the court. And I'm not even talking about trying to balance the court with liberals and progressives, but just putting moderates who are not conservative uh, ideologues, who are not, uh, you know, blindly pro-corporate uh, onto the courts. They, they've moved so slowly uh, to appoint new judges. They have failed to replace, uh, as is common, uh, the Republican U.S. attorneys who continue in office uh, around the country. And uh, those who have been appointed to the courts uh, have been uh, rather moderate to conservative. Uh, and so uh, I think that this uh, may be seen in the future as a significant lost opportunity the first year of the Obama presidency. Well, that's right. I think one of the mistakes Obama's made is the failure to seize control of the government, uh, which is a mistake that, that Clinton also made, by yep. the way. He allowed, yep. he allowed people even like Linda Tripp, who later became uh, the person who exposed the Monica Lewinsky uh, business, uh, he allowed her to stay in the White House for, for, for quite a while and stay in the government. So there was this effort. There was this, there's, this, there's this lack of being tough in terms of just getting rid of of these people you don't feel you can trust because they're, they're part of the old administration. Uh, the Democrats seem to want to believe that people can rise above that, even though the evidence doesn't seem to support that. 
Uh, but and there's also been this this well, some some of it's been self-inflicted. Uh, uh, Obama has you know, made this pledge not to use people who had been who have ever been lobbyists. And while some lobbyists can be very you know bad people in, in terms of representing pretty rotten things, others are are not bad at all. They somebody's representing public interest. Things. Yeah, right. Uh, but he's made this thing no no lobbyists, or except with rare exceptions. So a lot of qualified people were kept off out of jobs because they had they'd registered as a lobbyist at one point. So the so you end up with some self-inflicted matters, um, uh, but a general fa- general failure to sort of seize control of the government and turn it in the direction that he that would have been different from the Bush uh, administration. And some of that was also again his decisions to like keep on Robert Gates at defense and yeah. maintain more continuity than change. So some of this can be faulted on Obama, I think, but at other parts of it relate to the this remarkable decision by the Republican Party. Uh, to use obstruction in a way that we've never seen before in American history, um, uh, just consistently voting uh, hun- virtually 100% against everything mm-hmm. that a Democratic president proposes, even things that some Republicans had supported in the past, where they they flip around uh, just because Obama has endorsed something, right. <laughs> like this, uh, this 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 bipartisan fiscal commission that. People like John McCain had recommended and, and McConnell had pushed for. And then when Obama says, okay, let's do it, then they turn around and, and they vote against it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so there's this, there is this, and, and the real problem of the election in Massachusetts was that whatever the people in Massachusetts thought they were doing, what they ended up doing was convincing the Republicans that obstruction works. And that if they simply continue to obstruct, continue to block everything, and then, and then point to the failures of the the Obama administration. This idea that DeMint, Senator DeMint had of the Waterloo, everything being a kind of Waterloo effect, um, that that will that they will then be rewarded big time in in November. And they may be right. They may well be right, especially when you when you factor in how much money will be poured into those campaigns now because of the Supreme Court ruling. Yeah. And just one other item to add to this, uh, which is the recent uh, withdrawal of the nomination of a very qualified guy uh, to head the uh, uh, airport security, transportation security uh, office, whatever that's called, TSA. Uh, And it was because Jim DeMint thought this guy was too pro-union. And it's really sad that they didn't stand and fight for that and really out Jim DeMint. Uh, for his obstructionism. Instead, they caved, and uh, this, this only encourages them to continue on the, uh, the, the just-say-no approach. Well, there's also this other very, very sinister aspect of this, which goes to, their, to the right's media power that is now so intimidating, and, and more so every day. Uh, and, and that is that they can, they can focus on anybody they want and find something stupid you've done in your past or if not, they may they'll make up something stupid you didn't do in your past. But, but, they, but it's so easy to find something and then focus on it, make that the biggest deal, um, uh, whether it be some, some misguided petition you might have signed or whether it's uh, some youthful indiscretion that you committed, that because of the way this media power now exists, uh, they can go in and, 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 and get this. And we've seen even with, with sort of well-meaning um, uh, Groups uh, like uh, something like Acorn, how they can be, how they can be assaulted in effect, how they can, yeah. how offensive actions can be made to try to trip them up 
as happened with the, with the videos that were mm-hmm. then used uh, to try to there was somebody going undercover, kind of Donald Segretti like dirty trick, yep. and then and as I was talking to one uh, uh, person from an NGO, uh, you know, nonprofit the other day who said that that progressive nonprofits are one misdotted I, one miscrossed T away from being destroyed mm-hmm. every second of every day. And so they make one little mistake, or someone on their staff makes some mistake, and everything is destroyed. And that's the power now the right has built. And, and, I, I, and I've argued often that the progressives, especially the wealthy progressives, have a particular responsibility to build institutions and support institutions that can counter that. Because right now there's such an asymmetry this system that is it, 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 it is it is frightening and simply to 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 condemn Obama for not you know not make doing every making every decision correct and, and I certainly fall into that too um, is 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 really not the answer the answer is to is to build institutions of, that are honest and are democratic that are willing to fight for the, what's needed for the American people and the world and 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 to somehow counter this extraordinary power of the corporate money and the right-wing money that has been really just deformed our, Amer- our American political process. Robert Perry, ConsortiumNews.com. I really appreciate your commentary. Thanks a lot, Peter. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Peter B. Collins Show. Your comments are welcome. Peter at PeterBCollins.com. Happy trails to you until Again, happy trail.